Chaos and Christ Podcast. Chaos and Christ Podcast. We honor Christ. Lift heavy weights, act like men, and resist tyranny. And now your host, Alexi Felix. Well, all right. We are back, Chaos and Christ Podcast. I'm your host, Alexi Felix, and today we have a guest. I'm going to be having a conversation with Chuck Mason. He is the author of How Do I Talk to My Kids About Social Justice. Uh, Chuck, how's it going? I'm doing great, Alexi. How are you doing? Thanks for good, having good. me know. here. I'm glad to be a part of the podcast. Fantastic. I know we're figuring out this network stuff. And so far, we've got it down for the audio, and I think this is going to be good. Uh, but nevertheless, guys, I think this would be a good conversation. I've been conversing with Chuck here and there, and we've been able to kind of really uh, connect on the same issues that I'm typically talking about here on this podcast. Uh, So go ahead, Chuck. I mean, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, You wrote a book. I read it. It's uh, it's needed. It's uh, needed in our time. Uh, What made you write the book? But before you go into that, who are you? What made you get started in this? And yeah, we'll go from there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Boy, as part of my journey with God, walking with, with, with Christ, I, you know, it really kind of in the, in the nineties felt a call to seminary. I had a degree in biology and wasn't really going to pursue that in terms of a career at that time. There wasn't any biotech or anything. And, you know, it was either like law school or an, and, you know, I'd, in church and you were hearing in the, basically the charismatics were coming in one direction and the Baptists were coming in another direction. And you have Roman Catholics coming from another direction. I was like, you know, I really want to study theology. I want to get my hands on, on the word in Greek and in Hebrew. And it was just a journey. So I, I left, but I, I went to Fuller Seminary, which was really an incredible experience in Pasadena, California. But I knew at the time I wasn't called to full-time pastoral ministry. I mean, that's a calling. It's like a lot of people want to be involved in ministry. They want to be in church. But you don't step into being a pastor unless you know in your heart that that's what God has called you to. Um, but I, I went and I got my MDiv and started down through, ran out of money, and went into the construction industry to make enough money to pay for the rest of the degree. degree. And then several years later when I came back, we, when I first hit Fuller, we heard this word postmodern and that was in the nineties. And it really, it, it was, we knew it was a force to be reckoned with, but it really hadn't manifested. And most people didn't know what it was. They didn't know how to put a finger on it. And when I returned basically to finish my last year, uh, which was just right after the, the turn of the millennia. Then it was post, it was post-modernity, post-modernity was, was all that was all that people were talking about. And I, part of my degree program, I had to take a class in philosophy. It just was required. And I took a class in this, I took a class in philosophy and it was basically the nuts and bolts of postmodern philosophy and the implications of what that meant for truth, for the church, for culture. And it was an eye opener. It was, you know, when, when the thought of having a, a culture that has no concept of truth whatsoever and was so hostile to basically to the gospel, I would sit there in class with people. I remember sitting with a uh, professor who was, um, he was a physics professor who was retiring from UCLA and he was going to go into ministry. And we were in this class. We went and had lunch and we just looked at each other and we were like, you have got to be kidding me. I mean, what is going to happen if this really takes 
route. And you could see the predictions 20 years ago. So it was, I was hooked. So I took as many classes in philosophy and culture as I could in my last year. And really post, post-modernity, the church, the post-Christian culture we're in, that's been my um, intellectual life ever since. So, I mean, I've been tracking with these changes for over 20 years. And, you know, you could see the impact in culture, but it really has been about the year or two before COVID and then COVID kind of pulled the lid off of things for people to see mm-hmm. what a postmodern, post-Christian culture really looks like. So the reason why, you know, I've been doing a lot of public speaking for, I'm, I'm involved in the political realm out here um, and doing as much teaching in churches wherever I could about postmodern, you know, thought the changes that were coming our post-Christian culture. But, you know, five years ago, people were like, yeah, well, okay, nice ideas. There's no way that's ever going to happen here in America. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. my podcast, my audio podcast I'd done five years ago, I'd said Marxism was coming the new moral sphere for the left. What was saying the transgender movement? Most people are like, yeah, yeah, okay. And as it started to manifest, you know, I could see it, but. You know, I've got, I got two boys and my oldest just graduated from high school. My youngest right now is a junior. And four years ago, I watched, I watched woke hit them in the, in the public high school they were in. And it was pretty horrifying to go through seminary and to watch your children, you know, watch your boys really espouse the narratives. And I like every, every parent I reacted like we and I, you and I talked on the phone the other night, you react mm-hmm. out of fear. You try to control, you try to you know, you try to intellectually beat the ideology out of their brains and none of it works. So I had to sit back and I had to go, okay, I have all the tools and I had to actually treat my kids like a mission field. And, uh, and so I just really developed a method that worked with them about how to dialogue with your kids about these woke narratives. I used all the training and philosophy that I had and I really put it in more of a, an apologetics context. Um, so the book came out of my journey with both of my boys. My oldest is, he's as conservative as you get at this point in time, wants nothing to do with woke. Thank my God. youngest wants nothing with work. Yeah. Praise God is right. My youngest wants nothing to do with woke also. So the long, that's kind of the long journey of it, but that's what brought me to kind of take everything that I had experienced from Fuller and my public speaking and the ministry that I do and then going, all right, I'm on, I'm on the hook for my kids. I'm on the hook for my boys here. How am I going to make it work? Yeah. So I really just put it into, into the book as a, as a tool for parents um, and in terms of how you can actually dialogue with your children about social justice narratives and protect them from the indoctrination. That's that's awesome. Well, as you know, I am a dad to a young child. She's going to be five in a couple of days here. Uh, and I've actually went the direction of homeschooling because that was something that I started to recognize myself early in 2020. But for me, I didn't expect it. And so when you say you were in Fuller Seminary and you saw this and you saw what, what was going to come down the line eventually, I guess I, I'm just curious. One, at Fuller. Were they teaching it to you as an unbiased standpoint, them just knowing that this was going to happen and as a forewarning, or were they taking a hold of the position? Were they arguing for postmodernism? And I'm very curious about that. Um, and then the follow-up question would be, when it happened to your children, considering that you studied this and dedicated your time to this, did it surprise you even then when all of a sudden 
woke indoctrination was uh, basically trying to reach to your children? Let's we'll start with Fuller first. At the time, they presented postmodernity as this is a philosophical movement that has reality, and we don't know. And you know, when I encountered this in the early two thousands, the you can take a look at philosophy and you can see its potential. Whether or not that potential manifests within culture, and we you never know how these ideas take hold. We just don't. When they do, you have to take the potential and you have to you, you don't want to under underestimate the potential that it had. And at the time, everybody was saying, we're not sure where this goes, but theoretically, this is where this goes. But but it, at the time, you know, all of us sat back and said, you know, I remember talking with a physics prof, like we were just like, no, you know, humanity right. cannot yeah. be this ridiculous, you know, but, but don't underestimate. I mean, Adam and Eve in the garden ate the fruit and ate the apple. Don't underestimate, don't underestimate the power of humanity to choose a path to destroy itself. So now I don't know where they are in the intervening years. I, I think every, like there, there are faculty i know there's i know there are faculty members at places like wheaton and every other institution that are totally bought into critical race theory and other aspects so you have totally woke faculty in most of our major conservative what used to be conservative institutions um whether bible colleges or seminary well i don't exactly know where fuller is today i haven't kept up with it but really at the time it was like this is coming down the pike. I think this is something that you're going to have to deal with. Um, we, we, we're not going to oversell it. We're not going to undersell it. We're just mm -hmm. like, we're, it's all new to us. And uh, here you go. But in terms of my sons, when I, if I have to think about it, and this is one of my messages to people, to the to people in the church and conservatives, we've all lived like this just is impossible here in America, or it won't happen to our kids because they're, they were raised in church or, you know, they're in youth group or, you know, they're in Bible study, you know, and, and let me tell you, it can happen to anybody. It can happen to anybody's kids. 60% of our children, two thirds of our children are walking. This is a Barna survey. And we've known this for a long time. Two thirds of our kids are walking away from God when they, from 15 years of age or older, two thirds are walking away and they're, and they're walking out of conservative churches. So for me to see this impact my my children, knowing that they were in a in a school where this was embedded and that there was that potential, it was heartbreaking. But I had to sit back and go, you know, I just acted like it wasn't going to hit me, and I just acted like it wasn't going to hit my home. And um, but the sad reality is, most of us feel that way. But it does. It it does. I at least had the the ability, I think, to sit back and go, okay. I, I kind of knew that this was a possibility. I kind of knew that this was probably coming down the pike. So, okay, I've got to, I have to get in the game and really do my best here at this moment in time. Yeah. See, that's, that's my thing. You know, even though you were studying it, it almost comes at you because you know, something is a reality. It's a potential, but you know, maybe you don't believe it's going to happen in your time or, or maybe we just don't want to see that happen in our time. And so we, we actually force ourselves not to believe it uh, in, in the beginning, right? You know, so most people would just kind of push it to the you know wayside and whatever, we're here now, that's coming down the pike. Uh, and then it happens. And then it's, it's mind-blowing. Because for me, Chuck, 
you know, I grew up with my friends and we had talks about the one world order, the new world order, right? That always was an interesting topic for me because I kind of believed it, but it was also very conspiratorial and, you know, nothing was happening, at least not that we can tell or see. But after 2020 and where we find ourselves even today, and then looking back, uh, there were some things I believe that we got wrong, but there was a lot of things I think we saw happen uh, and, and got right as we were talking about it back then. I just didn't realize it was through postmodernism, right? And that there was going to be this thing called post-truth and that people will define their own truths based on their own feelings, which for the most part, when we look at the book, I mean, you definitely touch in on that. So I, if you don't mind, I just kind of want to like kind of go off with the, the first chapter. This is something that I have been trying to tell anyone who would listen to me about that I believe this was intentional, that this was this was something that was as a plan and probably way longer than what we can probably conceive of even in like 2018, 2016, or even the Obama era. I mean, how long, you know, based on your, your study, how long has this been a plan for them? I mean, is this completely intentional as far as uh, going after the children? A hundred percent. Absolutely. And so when you talk about the conspiratorial aspect of the new world order, um, yep. You're right. It does feel conspiratorial, but I think intuitively we've, we've had a sense that something's not right with the picture here, not only America, yep. but worldwide. So I have to warn you. So you got to stop me because I can get pretty deep in the weeds with some of the, some of the philosophy here or the ideas, oh, but we're watching them manifest. So, so when you ask the question, what was this intentional? Absolutely. 100%. And this is in part what, what the next book that I'm going to work on is going to be about. But the, the, the thumbnail sketch here is Marxists, well, we use the term Marxist, but this is collectivism that goes all the way back to the Enlightenment with somebody named Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who said we need to order society based upon collectivism. You need to hand in your rights as a citizen and individual to determine your life for what's best for the collective. Now, Marx takes that and he sees this in terms of the structures of society and in capitalism where you have the rich, you have the are taking from the underclass. That's responsible for everything negative. We need to totally reorder a societal system to reach equity and the utopia. So that's the that's an entire vision that people have been buying into. Now, when Marx when Marx wrote. It, it it hung out now like he's writing in 1850 1860 70 in there okay it hangs out in the ether until until vladimir lenin and the russian revolution has the opportunity to put this into play and what they felt was in, when you have this large of a revolution in russia that it's going to overtake the entire world because there were marxists in america there were marxists in germany um there were marxists in italy there were marxists everywhere but what happened was after they realized that it that it 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 took its root in within the, what became the Soviet Union, but then it it was isolated there until it made it into China with Mao in the forties after World War II. So what the Marxists said was, we're not going to have the worldwide overthrow revolution like we saw in Russia take over America and the rest of the rest of the West. 
And so there was a Marxist named, he was an Italian Marxist named Antonio Gramsci. In the 1920s, he said, we have to have a new, we have to have a new, basically a, a new paradigm here. We have to have a new strategy. And they called that the long march through the institutions, which mm -hmm. was, they said, we are going to make sure that we have as, as many confirmed Marxists going to show up to all the institutions of the West, whether it's the educational system, whether it's your local government, whether it's government. And, but they, they started mainly with the universities and they said, we're going to smile and we're going to go through our interview and we're not going to tell you we're Marxists. We're going to act like we're like everybody else. And so we're going to transform culture over a century or more by taking this long march through the institutions. And so, yes, the schools, particularly your public school, has been one of, one of the major playing fields for them. Did you see the movie Oppenheimer? No, I have not. I heard it was good. I, you're going to have to tell me about it because I, I haven't had a chance. I'll, all right. I'll tell you this one little clip. So you see Oppenheimer in his early days, and he got in trouble later during the McCarthy era because he was very, he was very Marxist, communist, sympathetic. And they show him meeting with faculty members at Berkeley, Berkeley, California in the 30s. And these people were committed Marxists. So you've had committed Marxists in an American faculty in our major universities like Berkeley since the early 30s or before here in America. Okay. So yes, this has been, this has been, a, an, and they, they'll admit it. They'll absolutely admit it today that they are looking to change the to change America, to change the world order by, like I said, becoming qualified for whatever position within institutions and then making sure that they integrate into those institutions. And once they're into the institutions, then they begin to change policy and minds by just imbibing their Marxist basically paradigm and shifting policy in, in, uh, in that direction. So mm. the schools, yes, absolutely. So what you have is you had committed leftists and, and this is the, in, in shame on us because I'll, you, you know, I'll raise my hand. I didn't know who was running for my local school board. Most, yeah, did most I. conservatives. Most, yeah. You know, let me ask you, do you how, when, when's the last time you voted in an educated manner? For your local school board before 2020 yeah check i won't even uh, sit here and lie i i'm barely just now trying to get aware of that stuff i did I, i've never done it i've never i don't even know how the what the person looks like i don't know if they're male or female i have no idea none well see what happened well we all did that so it's you and me and everybody else you know we all did it we assumed and and this is the point that i try to make like in the end of the 80s and 90s even Democrats, we still hold on to this traditional American worldview in which Judeo biblical principles, we all agreed, even if you weren't a, a Bible-believing Christian, that, that the basically biblical principles should be the backbone of our culture. Okay, they should inform us when we, you know, when we develop our institutions and our laws. And uh, we all just figured that if a Democrat got in there at the local level, there was no way that they could be a leftist that would be pro-trans. Pro and we just assumed that we didn't have to worry about it. And when we did that over generations, the people that wanted to change America from the inside, they got on, they, they made it unopposed into school boards and they brought the ideology yep. with them.
It, it makes sense when, when you say that. I, I did an episode not so long ago called Are You an Idiot? And it, it was obviously a provocative title. But the idea was that in Greek times, I believe, when for the population, if they were not involved in local politics, they were known as idiotas or you know idiots, where basically they just uh-huh. had no consensus of what was happening in the public sector. They didn't care. Uh, and that was actually looked upon very badly. Uh, you, you were not participating yeah. with the populace on, on voting and, you know, democracy and whatnot. And so it seems like we we are pretty much a bunch of idiots, <laughs> if I could use that term, kind of in that well, you sense. Can. Yeah. No, you know what? You got to call it out. I mean, you know, you've got to speak that truth wherever you go. And and I'm part of that. So I'm old enough. I'm I'm 58. Okay? I, don't, I don't care saying my age. I, I was in high school and college during the Reagan years, okay? I was alive during Reagan, and you didn't have to worry about a thing. Under Reagan, you could vote, and you could go home, and you didn't have to think about any responsibility, plain, simple, and period. And even through the, that one, four years of George Bush, and even Clinton, Clinton you, can get on, you can get on YouTube, and Clinton is saying, well, I, I cannot, yeah, I, they had Defense of Marriage Act, you know, DOMA. Mm where they just said a marriage is between a man and a woman. Well, we all played the idiot. We all, you know, and, and look at the look at the wealth we're enjoying. Look at the lifestyles we have here in America. You go home, you go to work, you enjoy your time with your family, you enjoy the what you've, you know, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but you can't do that and then not do the the aspect, the other side of it, you know? Like we all did. We all went home and we just felt like it'll never happen here. These ideas are too radical to happen to us. It'll the, people could never think of using the school as an indoctrination system, and you know we've got a biblical culture, you know it, at least in in theory, and God would never allow that to happen to the United States. It was founded on God's principles. It's God's work, and you know what? Call it, man. We played the idiot. Mm. That's what fascinates me about the Old Testament scriptures, and you know I guess. We look at them and say, how could you guys do that, Israel? You know, God's your king. He's, he takes care of you. And you guys keep turning your back on him. And here we are in America, just living it up and enjoying the, the fruits of other people's labors and thinking, yeah, nothing could ever happen to us. But God is with us. We are principally based on the Judeo-Christian values. But here we are. We are here. We are seeing a devastation happening within the culture. Uh, and it's because of these teachings. Now, so in your book, how do I talk to my kids about social justice? There's a, a chapter that I think you call, we speak facts, but they speak emojis. And I thought, mm-hmm. well, that just makes sense. <laughs> that just makes sense. Cause that's literally how we talk today. It's all about our emotions, our feelings and how that dictates us. Now, obviously they're attacking the schools and by attack, I mean, they're infiltrating it, you know, with their teachings of Marxism and postmodernism. How do they go after the children? What is their game plan here? Okay, where do I begin on this one? Well, the whole the whole aspect of you speak facts, we then they speak emoji was about the perspective the perspective kids are given today. So the the background is the background on this in traditional America. I call what I call a traditional American worldview that came through the Enlightenment and came from 1776 up until probably the 1960s is when the, the switch began to change. So we, as human beings, we need two, two basic sources of information to help make sense of our world, okay? Even as we walk with God and we try to figure out how we organize our culture. 
One is you, you simply need to be able to dis- discern what is, what is an accurate representation of reality. Okay. And coming from the enlightenment, we use logic, rational thought, facts, data. Okay. And we, we, we ran all that through the system. So that, and I always say, so like, if you want to know if Aristotle was a man, you, science would tell you he had a Y chromosome, you use some logic. Aristotle has a Y chromosome. All human beings have a Y chromosome or male. Therefore, Aristotle's a man. Okay. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't tell you if Aristotle's a good man. So how do you know whether Aristotle is a good man? And what does it mean to be a good person in culture? And how do we design our institutions to reinforce our values? Well, the Enlightenment came through Christian Europe. And so it just was natural for them to, to look at scripture. And of course, all the founding fathers were relying on biblical principles. So, what it, so you know, if, if what it means to be a good person, a good man? Well, we use we basically use biblical principles to guide life up until about that. Now, what happened was this concept of logic and biblical truth, <clears throat> and it came through Descartes and the Enlightenment. But all this is all this is absolutely critical for everybody. It may seem a little, little way, but let me take you through this. But Descartes said, basically, logic works and because of truth, and truth comes from God, which means that truth is, is objective. It doesn't change regardless of people's opinions. It is undoubtable. It is self-evident, and people can see this if you have common sense and a rational mind. The postmodern philosopher said that, well, number one, we doubt your God, and we have science in the early days of evolution that says that you're, we don't need your God any longer. And you can doubt everything. It's not self-evident. And if you're going to talk about this objective truth and your God being God and your truth is the truth for everybody throughout the world and every community, well, guess what? Christians are only a fraction or are only a, a percentage of the world. And not everybody believes your biblical truths. And that was the beginning of post-mod- of postmodernity, of tearing apart that foundation of knowledge. And they, they attacked logic. And they said, if there's no objective truth, and there's no, then logic is a lie. It's only an opinion. So if you're going to reject the Bible and you're going to reject logic as your, particularly as your tool to determine what is real, what are you going to use in its place? So what ended up happening, there's a school of thought and philosophy called emotivism, and I'm not going to go into it purely, but what happened is rather than using logic, now what people are replacing with logic is their feelings. So so their their emotions, their feelings, their perceptions about reality now are the is the is the intellectual tool they're using to determine what's real. So you go back to gender. Aristotle has a Y chromosome, but Aristotle feels like a woman, therefore Aristotle is a woman. So today, if they're going to determine what is real or what is correct about the world, they reject the use of facts and science and data and logic, and they're going now to using their emotional content. How they feel about the world determines reality. That's why Ben Shapiro all the time is saying facts don't care about your feelings. No, well, I mean, facts don't care about your feelings. I think we all agree with that. But it's kind of what you're saying, too, is that that sort of term really doesn't work with them. Right? Like, doesn't that push them away? Well, so this is why I did what I did in the book. You're right. You can look at them and say facts don't care about your feelings. And they are going to return to their feelings. They're not, they, they're really not very attuned to anything, any, any kind of a quote argument you could make with them that has to do with their, with logic or rational thought or common sense. So you're 100% right. 
they they don't um, and and that's what makes it exceptionally hard because we come wanting to use critical thinking which we all do but at the end of the day what they're going to do is they're going to say well i don't really care about your logic i feel this and and my feelings trump your quote unquote reality and and that's like we talk about the loss of truth it's not that it's not that our emotional content isn't important but at some point your emotions can go to delusion and it's always been observational data and critical thinking that is the antidote to delusion and they're today they're going no we're not down with that at all your your logic was a tool that you used for to gain power and to control and we're done with your power mm. and control we've got a new we've got a new way of of taking a look at the world and so so that's what the you speak facts they speak emoji is so what's happening in schools you have social emotional learning and so what kids are being taught is that their feelings and their perceptions and their opinions are valid regardless of whether they contradict what we can say in terms of factual observed observed reality and so it's about narratives today so you can say what is truth well before we might say is it is aristotle a man or a woman well he's got a y chromosome science and observation tell us that that is a man well today truth is about narratives and if if we have a, a narrative about what it means to be transgender that our community affirms based upon its emotional content and preferences then whatever conforms to that narrative now becomes truth for that community and that's how feelings dominate a portion in your book you basically you mention that what they do in the schools, in the public schools especially, is try to teach kids to reject critical thinking and logic. And obviously with that teaching, uh, you know, being in these schools, what, eight hours a day, uh, five days out of the week, uh, that's, that's where it gets to the point when they're adults and in the, in the real world. Uh, and now we're having this conversation. You know, we, there's, no, there's no facts, doesn't care about your feelings conversation. There's no object, objectable truths you can show them that would get them to say, aha, yeah, this makes sense. Because at this point, they reject critical thinking, right? Like that's that's where it's at. They don't think and they're not using logic because that's pretty evil, right? Logic is evil for them. Is that you're kind right, of more or less right. Yeah. So, well, there, there's another component that goes with it. And this is where the Marxism comes in. So what happened is when we got rid of the, when we got, when we rejected, for those people that rejected the Judeo-Christian worldview and biblical principles, okay? Well, you, you need another me moral measuring stick. So, you know, if we wanted to know whether something was evil or, or, or where, where's the source of evil, we would go take a look at biblical principles and, and the story about the fall and redemption and Christ's work on the cross. And then people conforming their lives to the concept of biblical holiness. Once that's rejected, how do you determine what's right or wrong? And where does evil come from? Well, the Marxist paradigm says it's all about society and society's construction. So good and evil now is not about your sexual preferences or your sexual activities. Good and evil is, are you able to recognize the systems in society that cause oppression and exploitation, which is the result, which is the source of suffering? So now today, what they're saying is, what is a good person 
in, in quote that context are people that can recognize sources of oppression, want to deconstruct society and reconstruct it. So the way this works together is you could look at somebody and give them a logical argument and they go, oh no, because see, I see a hierarchy here. I see a, a community that is not performing as well as another. And that means they're oppressed. And because they're oppressed, mm -hmm. I need to find the source of the quote, what they feel is the source of the oppression. And I will go after that. So my reality has nothing to do with your data. My reality is today that I empathize with a community that is or claims to be oppressed. And so there are communities that are, are oppressed, but, but this is my reality today. This is my, my paradigm for good and evil. This is my moral sphere. And you can talk to me about your facts and data all you want, but I'm here to overcome exploitation and oppression. And do you see how that yeah. works? So you can, and, and yeah. this is why, and then, so if, you know, we, when I get down in the book, like with critical race theory, if I can give you an example real quickly. So this is really important for everybody to, to recognize the black community underperforms the white community every year in America. And it's not good. Okay. And it is by no means good. And then when I say underperform, whether it comes from education, SAT scores, wealth, savings, or negative things like incarceration, negative interactions with police. They're underperforming white America on every level. So if you take SAT scores and they, they say, well, it's because the test, well, why do they underperform? Why does black America underperform white America? Well, they would say the, the Marxist paradigm says, well, the SAT score, SAT was, was comprised by white individuals, white America. They, they're, the language they use is white oriented. The examples they use in the word problems are white oriented. When they give a, a math problem, it's in the context of white culture. And this disadvantages black culture. Okay. Black students come in not understanding white semantics. They come in not understanding the examples of white culture that couches math problems. And this disadvantages math students. Okay. Or disadvantages students. Mm. But you can look at them and give them some data and say that West African immigrants. Okay. Who come to America. And generally, sometimes not knowing much English, there when 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 West African immigrants come to America, and as as adults, when they don't even have a high school education, and they come and live in the inner city, and they work in the inner city, but they instill discipline and the the love of learning in their children and their two parent households, and they wake up in the morning and they make sure the kid has breakfast and the kid gets to school and he has clean clothes and he has a lunch and he comes home. And he studies and he gets his homework done. He gets to bed early. He gets a good night. You see what I'm saying? When you take that and you show that black African immigrants yeah. living in inner city communities, they outscore even white America and the Asian community every year. But they'll, they'll, they'll disavow that oh. data. They'll disavow the family structure. You can look at them and say the biggest single predictor of whether a teenager or whether a child and, and it's really horrific. Suicide, teen pregnancy, poverty, drug addiction, okay, incarceration, negative outcomes with police, violence, all of those are correlated with single mother families. Okay. This like 70, 80% of the kids in prison, okay, who are, they come from single mother homes. It's the biggest single predictor and high, biggest, high, highest correlate. 
and the black community is almost is over 70% are single mother homes today. Mm-hmm. So you can yeah. give them the facts and the data and then they're going to go, they're going to look at you and go, no, no, it's all about systemic oppression. It's all about the systemic racism that's been built into our culture. So here's my thing. So that it's an interesting thing you, you, that you mentioned because they're going to say this is systemic racism. This is you know, against us because of our skin color, whatever the case may be. But let me ask you this. At some level, is is it some sort of systemic attack on certain minority groups? Not, not from, you know, white people, essentially, but from the from a government that would seek to create a a sort of a culture and group that would need their help, like a welfare uh, assistance. Is that possible? Oh, well, so. Okay, so what you just did was perfect in terms of the way that you framed this and why the conversation is so difficult and why this facts versus emoji is is how it hits us every day in life. I've debated critical race theorists. I've debated some of the most virulent people we have in our area about this. They will tell you that the black family, okay, the black family was intact and black people were ascending the cultural ladder up until the great society and the welfare state kicked in. And, and so the, but, but what they, what the welfare state said was even though the black family was, was reaching, I mean, was moving upward at a tremendous rate, they still lagged behind white America. So they wanted to give them extra resources to, to help, level the playing field okay and what they say is so mm-hmm. as as black america lags behind they they keep saying we need these programs to overcome the systemic racism that's there when we would look at this and say welfare kicked the father out of the home and welfare broke apart the family structure and the and, and in God's economy, mm-hmm. the family structure is the most important element for humanity. The family was given an Eden before the word in the church. Okay. Yeah. You break that family structure down, you break humanity. So we're gonna bring facts and data about this, and they're gonna go, No way. This is this is the hangover from slavery. This is the hangover from Jim Crow. This is the hangover. Mm-hmm. If you ask me what ended up happening was we have built a, we have built unintentionally a system that keeps single family structures going. And once those single family structures get embedded, it's, it's almost impossible to undo them. And it, I don't think the government necessarily wanted to create the dependency, but the left relies on the dependency and they say that the dependency is, mm-hmm. is, an example of systemic racism. See what I mean? And they're going, no, we, in our heart of hearts, we know that this is just a, so, so we are, we're, we're, we're speaking cross purposes with different, two different moral languages. And we have no way to, we're so, so entrenched with these two different paradigms that are antithetical that we really don't know how. But, but see, like I say, you nailed it on the head. And ultimately what I want people to hear is, as Christians and as Americans, you know, we can get bogged down in this ideological fight. And, and yeah, we got to make it. But at the end of the day, we got kids, we got people that are living lives that none of us want to live. And we got people mm-hmm. that are suffering. 
and we really need to come we as a, and even as a church we need to figure out what's causing it and the way forward yeah that's and that's something that i just see uh, the fight in the culture and you know I, I typically work from home now but when i was definitely working in other like companies i can see that tension where it's like this is this war and this ideology of war here but it just seems as though it's it's a tool being used as a way to divide people amongst each other based on skin color, based on, I mean, you name it. There's so many terms, intersectionality, critical race theory, and a portion in your book. And I don't want to give it too much away from your book because I want people to actually go and buy it. I believe it's worth it. But you do mention something, for example, uh, in the chapter five, your child is a young white for white adjacent supremacists. You know, see, these are the things that we are seeing and and starting to to have having to battle, having to defend our own reputation, having to defend what we believe. Like, for example, I'm not racist, right? But now I got, you know, certain companies, especially the one I work for, that wants to tell me I need to, you know, take courses on how to be anti-racist. I mean, you battle these things and it seems insane. And, and you know what? It is. But it's so hard to get around. You know, how, how do you help other people, you know, see, hey, I'm not a bigot. I am not a racist. And I'm not a white supremacist, even though, you know, some people have been labeled like Larry Elder as the black face of white supremacy. I mean, this is how far this thing goes. And so it's just I can see the, the just the madness behind it and what it's doing to people within a culture and how it's eroding everything. So it, my question to you, as far as, the, you know, your kids, you know, I'm a dad. I, I I feel very grateful that God has placed me in a position where I can homeschool my daughter and get ahead of this on the educational side. Absolutely. Um, uh, does that stop her from being influenced by this stuff? Is it going to help or is there still other things that, that parents like us should be worried about as far as even just homeschooling our kids? And then, you know, just give us a little bit of hope. You know, how, how do we, how do we communicate with our children in a way that's going to allow them to just be able to come to us and communicate back and, and kind of share. Now, this is all in your book, so I don't want you sharing too much because I want people to read it, but just give us a little something. Well, okay. So I'll start with this. For where you're at right now, and I'll tell you the, the mistakes that I made in parenting, and I think so many of us have made in parenting, which is, I, I was, you know, when, when, I, when my children were four and well, my boys were four five, six, where, you know, in church, now I, I, my family's a product of divorce. Okay. And, and that becomes devastating and it's hard to maintain faith when one parent walks. But having been said, these are the most critical years for your child. And, you know, I, I'm an intellectual and I always think, well, when they get a little older, we can have these deep talks and these conversations, man, you know, what most parents aren't doing is having Bible study with their children. They're not mm -hmm. praying with their children. And if they're married, the spouse, they're, they're not having Bible study with their spouse. They're not modeling that. You know, we're like, hey, we go through the world. We go to church on Sunday and we, and we come home. And so the thing that's most important for parents is that they're on a, a daily reading of the Bible with their kids, praying with their kids, in, imbibing them in a, in a culture of not just, you know, Christian homes today, like I said, there, there, there's a thing, this stat came out, 75% of Christian homes aren't spiritually vibrant. Nobody's praying. Nobody's studying the word. That's the most important thing that you can do with your child right now. But what, what we're finding is that the kids that are walking away, 
when you take a look at what's going on in their homes, okay, and it, and this is a little a little side course to the book, but I, I think it's actually where the disconnect is coming from. Most families, most rock star Christian families spend less than one hour a day in direct conversation with their kids after they come home from school. And that doesn't have to be even about spiritual things, okay? They're talking less than an hour a day. It's only maybe one or two hours a day on Saturday and Sundays. The kids, when they get phones and the computers, are getting 30 to 40 hours of, of social media time. And that social media can be with a tremendous number of kids who are woke. And woke narratives like, yeah, the whole multiverse is a part of the whole Marvel comics, a Marvel movie thing that comes out. So kids are getting super saturated. So the most important thing that parents can do is to, is to make sure that they are, are reinforcing their, the, the, the child's, the parents walk with God and the child's walk with God on a daily basis. Okay. Bible reading and prayer with the kids on a daily basis, being in church that way. And when it comes to when they get older, you got to be careful about what they're encountering, even the most benign stuff today in culture, the LGBTQ agenda and this concept of critical race theory of embedded systemic oppression is coming through in children's programs. Okay. Oh, yeah. So you have got to be, you've got to be really, really super careful about what your child is imbibing. And then, you know what? No phone until they're 16. Okay. Yeah. And, or, or if, no social media until this. And I'm not saying this. This is, I can see him in my mind's eye right now. Is an NY, NYU professor. Um, and I'll, I'll remember his name, Jonathan Haidt. He's not a Christian at all. He is saying social media is destroying young women. It's destroying our kids. So those are the biggest things where you have to. But once you are able to kind of put a hedge of protection around your kids, if you learn about, you know, and it, like the, the methods that I had used with the book to have conversations with my sons to challenge this. If you're really proactive about this, yes. And the final thing, though, is you've got to be building a relationship with your kids. I mean, you have got to be intentional about the time that you spend with them. Because if you don't have an emotional connection with your children, and a lot of Christian families don't, if you don't have an emotional connection with your child, they're not going to value the conversations you have. And it really comes down to really just be those basics of the Christian walk, Bible study, prayer as a family, prayer as a couple on, on an ongoing intentional basis, and then spending continual time with your children. And I say this about my sons. I'm fortunate. I got two boys. We go to the rifle range, you know, we'll go cut firewood. We'll go deer hunting. You know, I mean, it's, it's just like father, son, redneck time for me, which I, you know, but it doesn't matter what your kids You're are right. into. My oldest son was in the baseball. My younger son plays chess. Find out, ask them, what do you want to do? And then you do it with them. You just do it with them. And that's where you build the conversation base from. And that's where you build the relationship that you can work from. And those are the biggest things for kids these days. And when it comes to challenging the social media narratives, the, the strategy that I gave in the book um, about the facts and the figures and the way to have conversations and how to challenge the narratives, that's, that's, that's a fraction of it, brother. I mean, for you doing what you're doing with your child, with your daughter, homeschooling, being there, but man, work that, work that Bible study and prayer every day, every day. And, and, and those are the biggest keys. 
Yeah, that's that's very very encouraging for me personally. Just hearing you, I just I started to think. I'm like, you know, man, this is really hitting home for me um, because this this is part of the reason why I feel the need to speak out on what is happening. It, you know, I'm a father, right? And so the very thing that is in, ingrained in us as men, as fathers, is to protect our children. Mm-hmm. And I just mm-hmm. that's what I feel I have to do. It's my duty. It's what God has called me to do. Um, and so you know, these things I can see them. I can see what's happening. I can see that they're going after the children. It's an obvious strategy because if they can win the hearts of children, then they they win them for generations and then that will pass on from other generations. And so I truly see the reason why they would want to destroy the nuclear family. I understand why they would go and infiltrate schools uh, for this very reason. And they're playing a long game. And so I've decided to shift and play the long game myself. And recognized uh, I am a father. I'm a dad. Clearly, that is what God has allowed me to become. I have responsibilities on my hands to raise my child in the fear and ammunition of the Lord. And I'm into, I want to be intentional about that. But you mentioned some things that I just, it really hit, hit home, especially when you said, find out what they want to do and then do it. You know, my daughter loves arts and crafts. I'm not an arts and crafts kind of guy. And I would find any reason to do something else rather than do the arts and crafts. But now I'm, just, I'm starting to yeah. say, you know what? Yeah, I'm just going to do the arts and crafts. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to do that because I want that emotional connection. I want to know who my daughter is. Who, what is God doing in her? I want her to be able to come to me and have these conversations. And, you know, being a person like who I am, and I think you relate, intellectual, deep, we like to really think things through and, and really kind of peel the onion and get down to the nitty gritty. I want her to, you know, be able to share that with me in the future. And so, uh, Chuck, brother, yeah, I, I honestly appreciate that. That was super encouraging for me. So I'm hoping it was encouraging for anyone who's listening to the podcast. Um, you know, just to wrap this up, how can we, you know, get in touch with you? How can people find out about you, your ministry uh, and your book? Where can they go and buy it? Well, I, I thank you. I, I want to get to that. I want to circle back for a second to what you said and, and, and what I think is, is such a strength that you have to offer in what you're doing. And being a biblical man, it, it is about being strong and it's about the protector and the provider. And it is also about being sensitive enough to go, this is what God is calling me to do to protect my children. And for you to step aside and to homeschool your, your daughter, for you to be open to these things and for you to sit down and go, hey, it's arts and craft time. That's what that's what biblical manhood is about. You know, yeah, there are the times that we got to go out and we got to make the buck and we got to get it done and we got to be dad and we got to be the man. But, but man, when God puts that thing on your heart in front of you that says, hey, this may not be exactly what you thought about doing, but this is what it's going to require. And your, your heart to do that, that's the modeling we need. And when I, I have a I have a seminar that I do called the Flight from Faith: Woke Culture's Influence on Our Children's Flight from God, and we go down through this. And one of the things I tell families is, we wake up in the morning and go, "I got to make the buck. I got to go to work. I got to get these things done." And I'm like, "No." When you wake up in the morning, you say, "What are the spiritual needs of my family and my children?" And you put those spiritual needs of your family, and children, make sure that they're primary, and then you figure out your work around that. Mm. Yeah, and. That takes, that takes a man to do that. And so the model that you're doing right now, brother, what you are leading the way on, this is really what this needs to look like. 
We, we circle the wagons around our children. We take care of their needs. We protect them. And then we figure out how to get the rest of the world done around it. It's not like we sacrifice work, but you see what I'm saying? And man, and, and you're doing that and you're leading the way and you're modeling that. And, and, and that's what our culture is requiring of us today. Hmm. So I commend you. I mean, I absolutely commend you, you know? It does mean a lot. It does mean a lot. It's very encouraging. So to about the book, so I have a website, it's called battlegroundideas.com. And this is the kind of the ministry concept I have, because we are in a war of ideas, as you and I have talked about, you know, we are, we are hundred percent in a war of ideas right now. And so, you know, I do have a, I, I do some things within the church and I, and I'm working outside of the church too, but the whole, the whole focus is pre- equipping you to fight the culture war. So you can, you can buy the book through the website called How Do I Talk to My Kids About Social Justice, Protecting Your Children from the Woke Indoctrination of Public Schools. But I have videos on there, YouTube videos that'll help people understand climate, critical race theory, cancel culture. And I've got some articles that I'm, I'm starting to put out a series on how do I respond to LGBTQ, critical race theory, um, to go more in depth from that. I got a post-truth series on the podcast, always trying to put more content on. And you can find that at battlegroundideas.com. And if you Google it, you'll find it. But thanks for the opportunity to share that. Um, and I and really, if you're out there and, and you've encountered the material, I just, just, you can send an email through the, to the site and email and let me know. So, um, you know, I, I, I appreciate, and I appreciate you and what you're doing, Alexei, and just having the opportunity really to be on and to share. And, you know, like I said, I, I look forward to, to exploring more of this, you know, with you, because even for what we said, the conversation about, you know, you and the role you're taking on as a father and what our culture is calling us to today. I mean, we got, you know, these are the things we have to start talking about as much as anything, uh, because we're, we're in a war for our kids without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, as you and I have talked on the phone, I think there's something that God is opening up here for you and I to connect. I, there's a ton I can learn from you. And uh, and I just think that this is something very beneficial for those listening, because I can only imagine what they're probably going through trying to deal with all of this. And so things like your resources, as far as your book goes and uh, your podcast and whatnot, I'm going to make sure I link that up in the show notes. So that way people are able to just kind of scroll down real quick, click it and just be able to invest some little time into your work. But Chuck, honestly, I I appreciate this. I wanted to get you on here for a little while now, and I'm looking forward to obviously seeing a little bit more on your end. Uh, But everyone else listening, you're going to probably hear more from Chuck. We're going to collaborating and really just kind of coming together and seeing what God is doing in order for us to just bring the truth out and to really just help people to see that in all of this, you know, Christ is there. And we have to trust in him and trust that he is with us. And we have to just, we, as men, we have to humble ourselves, repent, and recognize the, the hour. And the hour is that, like Chuck was mentioning, we need men that are biblical, that will do what is necessary to raise their children, be good husbands, love their wives, and do good work. And I think ultimately that's how we resist this. Uh, that's how we fight against the bad ideas and then submit them to Christ. So. Well, I like to close off, Chuck, with uh, this nice little saying. I believe it. For everyone, guys, I hope that this was good for you. Again, look at the show notes. Make sure that uh, you click on uh, battlegroundideas.com and check out his book. I definitely recommend you buying it. 
But for those of you that are in the midst of chaos, just remember that Christ is there. God bless everyone. If you found value, then please subscribe and leave an honest rating and review. And remember that in the midst of chaos, Christ is there.